Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 034. Well, this is a frustrating moment, listeners. I just gave a 46-minute long lecture, and this Anchor app failed me. So, I am not going to be giving a very high rating to Anchor today because I'm very much frustrated with the fact that I just gave a lot of good and expensive work for, frankly, nothing. And so... We're going to move on and we're going to get this done, but you should understand that this is being done with a little bit of anger in my heart, similar to that which Archelaus felt, though he feels that he was dealt with unjustly by man. I suppose I feel I was done dealt with unjustly by technology, which is, of course, an extension of man. And even though I'm doing this on my wonderful cell phone in front of my wonderful computer and being able to share the highest art ever produced in our civilization with you all, I still find myself frustrated. So where is it that we started or stopped off last time? Well, we sent a failed at embassy to Achilleus, and we sent Odysseus, excuse me, Aias the Greater, and Phoenix to do it, and it was under the advisement of Nestor, and it was Agamemnon who agreed to it, and so that was a wise move on his part, especially because, well, we recall that Agamemnon is the one who first took Achilleus's concubine away, and in taking Achilleus's concubine away, Achilleus went away, and so all the men who just experienced their first ever lost as Achaeans during Book 8, well, who do they blame for this? Well, they understand that the reason they lost is because is because Zeus turned against them. Why did Zeus turn against them? Potentially because Achilleus is not there. And why is Achilleus not there? Because his concubine was taken. And who took his concubine? That was Agamemnon. So who does everybody blame? Agamemnon. So Agamemnon had to send an embassy to Achilleus to beg him to come back, but that would have been too easy. And so well, he failed, and what is he doing now? Well, it's later at night, and he's still nervous, and he's plucking at his hair, and he just can't go to sleep because he's so worried about being the biggest loser of all time. And that's a technical definition because the Achaeans have ten times more people than the Trojans. They are more disciplined, they're more ordered, they have more effective and strategically sound gods who are better organized and work together more harmoniously together. He has every single advantage, including Achilleus, a near god on his side, who he's managed to get... Uh, uh, essentially to be his enemy for a while. And so he's not looking good as a leader. Recall that even Diomedes mentioned the fact that Agamemnon, <clears throat> should should there be a loss, it will be Agamemnon's name who is pasted next to that. And should there be a win, Agamemnon stands to uh, be painted as quite the winner. Well, unless, of course, the Iliad gets written and we understand exactly um, how much he has to do with that. And so Agamemnon, pulling at his hair, decides to go seek Nestor, which means he seeks wise counsel, which means he's seeking wisdom, and that's an intelligent thing for him to do. Menelaus, we also note, cannot sleep as well. And why can't he sleep? Well, not for the same reasons as Agamemnon. Uh, recall that Menelaus does have some part in the fact that people are there fighting, uh, given the fact that it is his wife that everybody is fighting for, Helen, or his used-to-be wife, because, of course, she's married to Paris now, and the legality of uh, cross-cultural marriages at that time. Well, there was no paperwork on it, let's just say it that way. So, uh, her status as who she's married to is sort of and determined by a John Lockean way of who is she with right now, and she seems to be with Paris, though she doesn't much care for him. And so Menelaus can't sleep at night because he's, he's sad, he's... He's worried about, he just can't sleep because of all the Achaeans dying for him. 
And so he gets up and he goes to approach Agamemnon as one would expect him to do as he's the lower ranking man, Agamemnon the Greater. And Agamemnon tells Menelaus, well, at first Menelaus suggests, Agamemnon, we have to do something. We, uh, I, I don't want more men to die. And Agamemnon, of course, doesn't want to lose and doesn't want to be known as a loser. And so he's open to this sort of suggestion. And so what does Menelaus suggest? He suggests that they send a spy. And why would sending a spy be effective at this moment in time? Well, recall the Trojans. The Trojans are for the first time camped outside of Troy, outside of the Achaean uh, uh, wall. So this is the first time that their strategy has not been hide within Troy, perhaps send out a skirmish force to uh, deal with the Achaeans. And so their strategy is going to change as well as their position has changed. So a spy could be very useful if a spy managed to get out there, find out the positions of, say, their various allies, uh, see whether they had sentries so that whether they could do damage at night and potentially inflict some damage on the Trojans, um, which is precisely what we're going to see happen. And so Agamemnon tells Menelaus to get Idomeneus and Aias the Greater, effectively the royal and the muscle. Agamemnon is himself going to go get Odysseus, Megis, Aias the Lesser, and Diomedes alongside Nestor. And something sort of interesting that Idomeneus says uh, as uh, Agamemnon collects him is he, he indicates that he knows that Menelaus often follows behind uh, Agamemnon, that he often is, is uh, the, he's, he's the second man always, one might say. He's, like, he's, always a, he's always a groomsman, even though this war is about him, but it is sort of about him being a groomsman and that, well, he's certainly not the one getting married. Uh, not yet, anyway. And so Idomeneus says, well, where's Menelaus? He's usually following along with you. I should admonish him. And Agamemnon says, no, he is usually following along me, with me, but he's actually doing something I asked him to do right now, which is uh, following his orders anyway. So he is still following Agamemnon, which is, I would say fairly funny and fairly interesting. And so... Something interesting, just from an etymological note, is that Menelaus's name comes from Minos, which means uh, to remain or be left behind, and um, Laos, from which get, we get the word laity, which means people, so left behind by the people. And in fact, he's left behind by the, um, the symbol of the people, the king, Agamemnon, and that he follows Agamemnon, but he's also left behind by that symbol of the people and by several people he loves in the Odyssey after they've died, which he, he mentions very sadly, in his sort of land of sorrow with Helen, in this land of memory and what could have been and what has been, um, he, he says that he would give away two-thirds of his wealth to have his friends back. And I, I'm fairly certain that the only reason he would keep the one-third of the wealth is so that he wouldn't have to be a beggar to all of them. And so, Menelaus is still following Agamemnon around, even if not directly. Nestor makes the rounds. He wakes Odysseus, then Diomedes, then Aias the Lesser, and Megis. And then Nestor goes to inspect the sentries. The sentries are named for the, the fact that they are named for uh, them. Sentry and the word sense both come from sensus in the Latin, or sentire, which means to, to sense or feel something, to see something. And so a sentry is a direct indication of the alertness of a people. And so uh, Nestor goes to find the sentries, and I believe there's something like 700 with seven leaders, something like that. There's several hundred of them, and Nestor finds them alert and ready. And this is good because they need to be ready because the Trojans are for the first time right outside their walls, and the Trojans, frankly, could be sending something, somebody like a spy, because if the Achaeans are thinking about bringing a spy out onto the battlefield, well, certainly the Trojans could be thinking the exact same thing, seeing as they are now also in a new position requiring a new strategy. So what the Achaeans think is likely what the Trojans think, and the differences will be found in how they think it and how they execute it. And the Achaeans will be found 
victorious on both ends, and of course the Trojans will be found wanting. So, Nestor inspects the sentries. They're all alert and good. Something to understand about this is that the Trojans neither have sentries, nor are they alert or good, nor do they have somebody to think up the idea to give them sentries, nor do they have the capacity necessarily to implement wide-scale sentries, nor do they have anybody to go check on the sentries. So the systems uh, set in place by the Achaeans and the character traits that they have that they have implemented uh, broadly across individuals and specifically in certain individuals like Nestor ha are paying off. They are alert broadly and they have a very wise guy, Nestor. So the night meeting begins. First question asked, and it's asked by Nestor is, who will spy on the Trojans? Is no man trusting in the daring of his own heart and appeal to courage? Uh, uh, who wants his, the glory of his name to go to high heaven and appeal to glory and eternal fame? And, and he offers a gift from all the captains of a black lamb, which is a symbol of sacrifice. It, it symbolizes a unique sacrifice because a black lamb would have been rare, and so you would have sacrificed a black lamb during a, an especially auspicious event. So it's sort of a wish for several interesting events to happen in one's life that one is so th thankful for that he sacrifices to the gods. And so it's a symbolically rich gift. And so what sort of person is Nestor seeking to uh, uh, extract from the crowd? Well, someone who is courageous, who will fight hard enough to pursue glory and therefore not betray the cause, and someone who uh, wants a unique life full of anomaly and symbolically rich situations. And so, who's the first person to uh, pipe up? Oh, well, that would be Diomedes. And of course, we expected to be Diomedes because Diomedes has been on the rise. And we indicated that of the two aspects of Athena we've currently illustrated, Odysseus represents the stabilizing function on the dominance hierarchy in order to maintain its existence so that things stay fair and people can ascend it. And since it's fair and stabilized by the function of Odysseus within the dominance hierarchy, uh, that one aspect of Athena, then what Diomedes represents, which is how to improve one's station on the dominance hierarchy or how to climb it, well, since Odysseus is there, Diomedes is allowed to climb, um, which is the second function of the dominance hierarchy or, or of Athena's wisdom. So we said not only does wisdom maintain the dominance hierarchy so that there's something there that groups people together, but uh, she also represents the capacity to improve one's position within it, which has been evidenced by uh, Odysseus or Diomedes' improved side on the battlefield. He's fighting not only man, but God, but and also high-ranking Trojan champions. Some evidence from Dante on this, which I, I, I've just come into from the last few days of teaching both on the sphere of Jupiter and the sphere of Saturn, is this. In Dante's sphere of Jupiter, uh, Latin phrase, Deligate justitiam qui judicatis terram, which means um, cherish justice, you who would judge the planet, indicates that those who are just real rulers must first cherish justice in order to be just, but also what do they need to be capable of doing? Judging correctly. And judging correctly involves the need to have wisdom. And so when we see the eagle speak with one unit of voice, indicating that he speaks for all the people who spoke for the people, the we people, the kings, we also then focus and see six souls on the eye of the, um, <clears throat> of the eagle. And, well, what does that mean? That means that that which directs the eagle is that which directs the state. And that which directs the eagle is the eye. And the eye, which we know from Dr. Jordan B. Peterson and Carl Jung, indicates Zazu from the Lion King, or the eye on the back of the dollar bill, or the eye of Horus, alertness or awareness. And so that which guides an eagle is that which guides a person, which is that which guides the state. And so awareness 
is one aspect of wisdom. And that's what Odysseus represents. And that's why, in fact, after Diomedes volunteers, several other individuals will volunteer, including the Iontes and, um, and Menelaus. In fact, Agamemnon will say, you don't choose the person who's highest in rank. You choose the person you think is best for the job. And Di fearing that Menelaus, of course, will volunteer and then die. And then all of this would have been for naught. And his name, Agamemnon's, will go down in history as loser. And so, uh, Diomedes chooses, of course, the principle of alertness or awareness or competency, and that's Odysseus. And so back to Dante, in the sphere of Saturn, Saturn takes on the form of a golden ladder. And that's a reference to Jacob's dream in the Old Testament Genesis, where he dreams of a ladder with angels going up and down. And also a reference to, in the symposium, the conversation about the ladder uh, uh, the golden ladder of truth, and I forget whether it was Alcibiades or Diomed, or excuse me, Socrates who brings up brings that up. But I, I think it is actually Socrates speaking about diatima when it, it's discussed. But the idea is that one who contemplates, because the sphere of Saturn is the sphere of contemplation, is one who observes the decrease and increase of position in the hierarchy of being, in the celestial hierarchy of being, or the great chain of being, as the medievals would have known it. Well, if you can contemplate and observe the workings of being in uh, moving up and down the celestial hierarchy, which is just a medieval representation of the dominance hierarchy, then perhaps you then understand how to move up and down the dominance hierarchy. And, well, that would mean that the, the sphere of Saturn, the seventh sphere, represents what Diomedes represents, which is the capacity to transcend or improve one's position upon the dominance hierarchy, based also on the principle of Do uh, uh, Odysseus, which is uh, awareness. And so you would hope that Diomedes and Odysseus as the most competent individuals on, uh, on the Achaean side outside of, or in a broad way, rather than simply just considering them as fighters, you would hope that they would be the ones that would go out, on, out into the night because they're the most alert, they're the most aware, they're the most able to adapt to circumstances, and they're good friends to each other. Speaking of how well prepared they are, something interesting is that they they take off their normal weapons and armor and fit themselves with leather for the night. Why do they do this? Because, of course, that which they normally wear, the normal armor, is made of metal or at least has metal uh, on the outside and has pieces which are metal. And, well, if the moon and the stars are out, what does the moon shine? It shines light. And what does light do on metal? It, it, it reflects. And... So one could possibly see the reflection off some of the metal gleaming at night, which will be something that happens in the Aeneid to Euryalus and um, his lover, Nessus, uh, due to their foolish, avaricious decision to take the... Instead of completing their mission, they, they kill some individuals foolishly, sort of like one who attempts to kill several pieces but gives up one strategy in chess. And while they're doing that, they will take off pieces of armor. They will uh, strip the corpses. And instead of running to Aeneas, whom they, they are supposed to contact, they will, they will be spotted and they will be caught. Well, in fact, one of them will be caught and then the other will, well, it's an open question whether heroically or not, uh, strive to save him. But he, he will heroically die with the person he loves precisely because he does not heroically achieve his, uh, his mission or his goal. And... That is a reference back to what will happen tonight because a Trojan spy will go out and will seriously fail to achieve his goal. So something interesting is that Odysseus's hat 
His leather cap was stolen by his grandfather, Autolycus. Autolycus' name means self-wolf, and he was himself known to be a very famous thief. And uh, in fact, funny, I always think this uh, note is, is that the, the cap had been stolen by Autolycus by Amentor, the father of uh, Phoenix. And so um, Odysseus knows exactly what he's going out into the night to do. He's going out there to do some evil, to do some harm, to go steal something. And not to steal anything physical in this case, but likely to steal uh, information. But he will get a chance to steal some physical things too, and he will have the chance to steal a man's life. Though it will be Diomedes technically who does that. And so Diomedes and Odysseus are well outfitted, uh, both per through character qualities and through personal possessions for this outing. They then see a heron, a great blue heron, or not a great blue heron, but a heron. I've seen a great blue heron. One lived at St. John's where I went to graduate school uh, uh, along College Creek, and it once actually flew alongside me for a moment as I, uh, as I was biking at night right before I left there, and I thought it was a great portent or sign, so I understand these bird signs to some extent, though I don't necessarily know what that sign meant. Perhaps he was saying goodbye. And well, Odysseus and Diomedes then pray to Athena, indicating that they understand that it's her intelligence that will get them through the night and showing their piety and showing that that's what heroes do. Okay, good. Um, she, she's also called by an interesting epithet there, Atritane. And something to keep in mind about epithets is that epithets, epitithemi, uh, um, to place on top of, are either uh, descriptive words or phrases uh, attributed to heroes or places like man uh, or breaker of horses, uh, manslaughtering, bloodstained. Uh, two interesting scholarly theories about them is that, are that they're used often for mnemonics in order to memorize one's place, which is possibly true, and also used to fit the dactylic hexameter fairly strict meter occasionally. I think those are both uh, likely true at times. However, often they are used in a descriptive way, I would say, uh, particularly when Ares is first introduced as bloodstained, manslaughtering, and stormer of strong Walls, I would say that he's very clearly introduced in that way to indicate that that's the sort of guy he is, violent. And that word cluster, that's exactly what it indicates. So, good. Odysseus and Diomedes go out into the night. And so on the other end of things, Hector and the Trojans also hold a council. And so let's see what Hector's got, and let's see how he does things slightly differently. Let's recall immediately that Nestor, um, when he made an offer to individuals offered a very particular prize, but only at the end of a speech where he first invoked the courage of the individual's hearts and a call to glory. Well, this is what Hector has to say. Who would take upon him this work and bring it to fulfillment for a huge price? The reward will be one that will suffice him. 10, 303 to 304. So we immediately see that where Hector goes with his speeches, he offers a giant reward first and foremost. In fact, he offers two very fine horses and a chariot, which would be a very kingly award for any Trojan, because recall they're people of the plains like the Spartans, and therefore horse races and fine horses can be bred there because they can use horses all the time, unlike, say, Ithaca, where Odysseus lives, where goats do well, and of course the stubborn goat herd Melanthios, who, well, we'll see him come to evil soon enough in the Odyssey near the end. So, what Hector appeals to is not courage or an attempt at uh, glorifying one's name eternally, which one might understand would bring out the qualities of courageousness and someone intelligent enough to want fame in the future, um, but to one's immediate acquisitiveness, to one's avarice, to one's greed. And so he should expect not to receive somebody courageous and competent, but somebody full of greed and potentially very much short-sighted, which is absolutely the opposite of what you want from a, a, a spy. You need somebody extremely intelligent so that they don't get caught 
and extremely committed so that if they do, they know exactly what it is they have to do. And that certainly does not involve telling um, secrets of position and strategy to the enemy, which certainly will be done by the man who volunteers. His name is Dolon, son of Eumenes. So Homer gives us a few clues that we're supposed to immediately sniff this guy out as bad. The first thing is that he has five sisters, and what does that mean? Well, that means that he wasn't raised about around brothers, which means he didn't do the roughhousing necessary in order to make him tough, which means that he's effectively soft and can't deal with the work of war in the same way that uh, another sort of man might. So we understand that perhaps his greed comes from an effeminacy. Second thing is he's evil-looking. Evil-looking, well, we've heard that sort of language before about Thersites, and Thersites' evil-looking face was indication of his evil little soul and his evil little disordering words. And so to hear that Dolan is evil puts a direct parallel line with him and Thersites. And Thersites, well, last time Odysseus saw him, he whacked him on the back with a, 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 a scepter. And, well, Odysseus now has reinforcements with Diomedes and he wouldn't need any help with somebody of Thersites' class alone, but having a second person with him who's also sort of a symbol of competency and the ability to tran or to ascend a competency hierarchy, well, <laughs> this guy stands no chance. Just to add a little bit more to what he says, uh, just to make him look even worse, not only is he the first person to volunteer out of pure avarice, well, he demands something more of Hector. He says he actually wants Achilleus' horses. And so what is so foolish or what is so crazy, what is so absurd about that? Well, several things. The first thing is who's going to kill Achilleus? Answer, absolutely nobody. Certainly not a Trojan. Um, perhaps a god. And, uh, well... So first and foremost, Achilles' horses would have, or would have to be captured by Achilles being killed. Achilles isn't even fighting right now, and uh, well, who's who's going to confirm that bet? Um, who who can who can pay that out? Well, not Hector, and so Dolan is sort of showing that he's a fool in accepting Hector's agreement, and Hector is sort of showing that he's a fool in by the fact that he is allowing a person to go out and spy who believes that he will someday be in the possession of Achilles' horses and is in fact spying because of that particular reason. Well, in any case, even though Hector should see that, this, that his approach to selection was a poor one that does not involve either trust, and perhaps he doesn't have the necessary trust with the men around him, doesn't know them well enough, not all of them anyway, seeing as there are new men coming in. In fact, new men have come in tonight. They're called Thracians, and they won't do so well. Um, but instead of relying on trust between individuals and also making a call or an appeal to say courage, what Hector does is he appeals to the avarice of his men, and so he gets the most avaricious and one of the weakest and lowest-charactered men. And so, um, well... This unprepared man, alone, without a second, whom Hector doesn't think to send out with him and he doesn't think to ask for, because neither of them is focused correctly, uh, Dolan, on what he will receive if he wins. And Hector, well, it's hard to say exactly what he's focused on. It seems like he's attempting to do the right thing, but he doesn't have a high enough resolution view of the situation in order to act correctly. Of course, Nestor uh, not only approached the situation more intelligently by making an appeal to courage to the captains surrounding him, but also ensured that uh, the top two guys went out with him, and actually Agamemnon did that too. So the fact that more leaders are involved in a more intelligent way, and they ask for better characteristics from 
and picked from better stock than Hector, put the Achaeans at a major advantage. But Hector even still could have made a couple uh, differences. He could have appealed to Courage. He could also have um, attempted to send somebody else out with Doan or even just uh, selected better in the first place. So Hector, as a strategist, has showed himself wanting, whereas the Achaeans have done this quite right. And so we'll see... Um, we will see the evidence of the superior strategy of the Achaeans and their superior implementation now. So Odysseus hears Dolon, indicating that the Achaeans are even more aware than the Trojans, and at least Odysseus is more aware than Dolon, and he and Diomedes let uh, Dolon pass by. The moment they let Dolon pass by, they've effectively killed Dolon. Why? Well, because now he's trapped between them and the Achaean camp, which means if he runs towards them, he's dead. If he runs towards the Achaean camp, he's dead. And the whole reason that's ha happening right now is simply due to a lack of awareness on his part. It is certainly true that Odysseus and Diomedes are clever, cunning, strong, fast, and would probably have caught Dolon at some point in some way. But just one error of judgment on Dolon's part, which is of course indicative of his character as a whole, leads to what happens to him. And so he hears Odysseus and uh, Diomedes at first, and at first he assumes, and this is another intelligent part of Odysseus's plan, that they're Trojans because they're coming from the side of the Trojan camp, though they've simply dropped behind him. Um, he then s breaks into a run to try and flee, which is of course a foolish thing to do because he's running straight towards several hundred Achaean camps. Diomedes then throws a spear nearly right over his right shoulder. And he stops, and he shakes, and his teeth shatter, and he begs for mercy, and he breaks into tears, and he says, please don't kill me, and he asks to be taken alive, and he's immediately showing his character. And so, Odysseus says, do not fear, and let no thought of death be upon you, line 383 on book 10. And that's a very famous line, I would say, just because uh, it sounds like Odysseus is saying, Oh, no, we won't kill you. Just talk to us. But in fact, he says, just don't think about death. We have things to talk about. And I think that's a good way of just sort of going about living, right? That uh, <laughs> just go about what you're doing, and then someday you'll die. And that, that's essentially true, I would say. So do not fear, and let no thought of death be upon you. And then Odysseus asks several highly intelligent questions. Well, and actually, he makes fun of... Um, uh, 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 of Dolon a little bit too because of Dolon's foolish request of Achilles' horses. So, uh, lines 400 to 411. Then Odysseus the resourceful smiled and spoke to him. Surely now, the, these were mighty gifts that your heart longed after. He's mentioning uh, Achilles' horses that were asked for. The horses of valiant Iacides. And keep in mind that Achilles is sometimes known by his grandfather's name, Iacos. Iacides meaning son of Iacos. And by his father's name, Peleus, Peleides, Peleides, like he's called in the very first line of book one, is what he's sometimes called, which is also something that happens later on in the text with um, Diomedes. Diomedes is often called uh, the son of Tidius, but he's also called um, the son of Aeneas, who is his grandfather at one point, and it makes a little difference because they are all uh, these are their ancestors, and effectively they are called by their father's name for the same reason that those in the West and America are called by their father's name, too, in terms of the last name. They are difficult horses for mortal men to manage or even to ride behind them. For all except Achilles, who was born of an immortal mother. But come, tell me this thing and recite it to me accurately. 
Where did you leave Hector the People's Shepherd when you came here? Where is his gear of warline? Where are his horses? How are the rest of the Trojans disposed, the guards and the sleepers? What do they deliberate among themselves? Do they purpose to stay where they are, close to the ships, or else to withdraw back into the city now that they have beaten the Achaeans? And Dolan starts to, re starts to recall or to respond, I, I will accurately recite all these things to you. And so what do we see there? We see first Odysseus showing his rise sense of humor. He's making fun of Dolan for wanting an impossible gift that he couldn't possibly even enjoy because he says, not only is that an interesting gift to you know, want Achilleus' horses, uh, especially given the fact that he might not even leave, and if he doesn't leave, he'll probably just kill you. Um, but you couldn't even ride those horses. Only his charioteer automaton, and he can ride them, and only he can ride them from behind. None, nobody else can because they're immortal horses, and it's like, Dolan wouldn't even know what to do with that gift if he were to get it, and that's the idea behind what he asks. And so, Odysseus asks a stream of very intelligent questions. Where is Hector? What is he planning? Where is his gear of war? Where are the other uh, uh, Trojan encampments? Is there a guard detail? Are they alert? Um, everything that's important to know. What is the strategy for the uh, Trojans tomorrow? And so he looks for positioning, he looks for strategy, and he looks for the specific locations and the defenses of each uh, part of the forces, and Dolan does not disappoint them. And in fact, he tells Dolan, speak to me accurately. Tell me the truth when you speak to me. Don't just speak to me, but speak to me truly. And Dolan makes sure to add that in, that he will accurately recite what it is he has to say. And what does he have to say? He says, well, uh, here's the location of the Carians, the Paeonians, the Leges, the Calconians, the Pelasgians, the Lycians, the Phrygians, uh, the Mysians, the Myonians, and also uh, the Thracians. And a couple things about the Thracians. For one, they're uh, staying apart from the pack, from the entirety of the force. Two, they also just arrived. And, um, well, three, they have these really fine horses and are run by King Rasos. And so basically Dolan is understanding that these are the people that Odysseus most wants to hear about because he knows that in telling Odysseus these facts about them, they're, they're new and therefore green and therefore not used to the battle and therefore do not have a guard detail. And also the fact that they have good swag, good horses, which should Odysseus happened to be with Diomedes and Diomedes Achilles men and Odysseus take their horses. Well, Diomedes just won the horses of Aeneas, which would indicate that both Diomedes and Odysseus would have horses that were comfortable on Trojan plains because they came from there, which would indicate that both Diomedes and Odysseus were equally comfortable at Troy as they would be at their own homes at that point. And so there's something else sad and unknown by, not necessarily mentioned by Homer, but in the background of the Trojan story is this, that there's a story, and I believe this is in Euripides' Rasos, and it's at least a story around Troy, that had King Rasos' horses had one single drop of water from the river Scamandros surrounding Troy, they, that Trojans never would have fallen. And so that's always very interesting because the kids are always struck by, oh my gosh, if only, if only the very next morning the horses had woken up and gone to take their water, which they certainly would have done, oh, they wouldn't have died. And they think, oh, that one action. And often prophecies that do come to fulfillment that we did not wish to come to fulfillment in Greek and Roman um, mythology involve something small happening, uh, like Orpheus just turning around and seeing and seeing uh, his his dead wife at the entrance to the underworld just before she's supposed to come back or or Eros and Suke and she just looks a little bit at Eros and drops a little bit of wax on him and he gets hurt enough to ruin everything and well the idea that lies behind several of these stories and in specific this story is this that everything that went wrong tonight was a function of lack of trust 
on the part of the Trojans, which led to an ultimate betrayal by Dolon, which leads to the death of 12 Thracians and then their king, Rasos, who is described as having a nightmare, but no nightmare, Diomedes, indicating that the most nightmarish reality possible becomes reality, and thus nightmare and reality become one, just as dream can become reality and somebody living out their dreams. But this is the opposite sort of dream, a bad dream, a nightmare, where you die because you were betrayed on the first night you come to Troy when all you needed to do was have your horses drink water in order to keep Troy from fall and that falling and that's exactly what a lack of trust does to a people and so Dolan now expects his reward and so if you've ever seen Aladdin he can expect his eternal reward here because he says I gave you the gold of information take me back to the ships tie me up here and uh, Diomedes says well buddy problem here is we can't take you back to the ships because it's too close to dawn and we need we have we have bloody work to be doing. And, well, we can't simply leave you here either. So what we're going to do is slice. He kills Dolan. He cuts off his head while he's still speaking. And then they sacrifice, actually, the, uh, <laughs> the, um, the items of Dolan to Athena, the, uh, the armor. And that's very interesting because it indicates they understand that the reason that he died and they didn't is because she favors them and not him, which means they act intelligently and he didn't. And so they, they actually thank their very intelligence, Athena, for, uh, for surviving. And so what do they go do then? Well, they go to where the Thracians were. And Odysseus gives Diomedes the, ex the explicit instructions to slice the throats of the men while he moves their dead bodies out of the way of the horses. Why does he move their dead bodies out of the way of the horses? Well, because the horses are new to, um, are new to the war land, are new to the battleground, and therefore would be get squeamish because they were unused to dead bodies if they were to step on them. And so since they would be stepping on dead bodies um, that are littered all over the ground, they might buck and scream and draw attention to themselves, and thus Odysseus and Diomedes would be caught. And so they do things in proper order, even when they're doing gruesome business. Diomedes does the killing, Odysseus moves the bodies, then Diomedes comes, like a dream but not a dream, Diomedes and darkly kills Rasos, fulfilling the worst fear of his imagination. The nightmarish reality becomes true of being betrayed and dying the first night at Troy, alone, away from others after all his men had died. And that is a nightmarish uh, situation upon articulation. And so, Athena then commands the men back to the camp, and this is something interesting, that she tells Odysseus not only when to go places, but often when to leave them. And this is something that will happen uh, several times during the Odyssey, that Odysseus wishes to leave or not go to a place that is dangerous, often under the... Uh, or due to the wisdom of either Hermes or Circe or Calypso or uh, Athena, and his men will not listen, and they will overstay their welcome places, and overstaying one's welcome, uh, uh, or being made to overstay the welcome one wishes to receive, will be major themes of the Odyssey. What is imprisonment? Mental imprisonment as well as physical imprisonment, and it seems as if they're very much connected, and, and certainly they are. Um, so, as Odysseus guides, guides the horses and moves the dead bodies uh, because they're not yet used to them and would be spooked. Uh, Diomedes goes through the gruesome business and kills. Kills also Rasos. Athena then commands them back to the camp, and this is this is important because the principle of alertness on the Trojan side. Apollo wakes up a man named Hippocoon, and the Trojans attempt a small chase, but it's too late. And so now Odysseus has uh, Trojan horses from King Rasos and the Thracians, and also Diomedes has fine horses from Neus 
and the Dardanians. And so Odysseus and Diomedes, both indicating competencies, um, one stabilizing the dominance hierarchy, which is one aspect of Athena, that's Odysseus, and Diomedes indicating the capacity to ascend the dominance hierarchy, which is another aspect, the dual aspect, or the twin aspect of Athena, you might say the second gray eye of her. Well, now they both have Trojan horses beneath their chariots, indicating that they have their war feet, that they're just as comfortable they're fighting at Troy, that it's just as much known territory as their own homes. It has become their own homes. They have become so comfortable moving through this environment. And you can see that that's actually true not only in terms of daylight activities like assembly and battle assembly actually as a nighttime activity, but even very late nighttime activities beyond assembly or battle during the day. They can even go out into the night and be successful. And so these individuals are the most widely competent ones that we've run into yet. And so we finish book 10. Nestor, wisdom, uh, invites the men back in, sees them and praises them. Uh, they, they arrive back triumphant, triumphantly. And so now books 11 to 16, we're going to see some major action in battle. And then books 18 to 24 are going to go very quickly. And I would say like a marathon runner separates a marathon into uh, two halves, the first 20 miles and the last six miles, uh, not, not simply by a statistical or a statistical a mathematical, not in a traditionally mathematical having. Uh, so will I do that with the Iliad. I would say the first ten books, uh, or rather the first nine books, the first half. Book ten is sort of liminal, and then the last fourteen or so, or uh, thirteen, I suppose. There we go. No, no, no. Yeah, nine, ten. Yeah, yeah. The last fourteen are the second half. And so if you've stuck through this first half and you've enjoyed what you've heard, well, it only gets better from here. And after the Iliad, on to the rest of the great books. Well, I've enjoyed doing this so far, and this is my second time recording this today, and hopefully this time it actually gets out there. This has been the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 034, Homer's Iliad, book 10.